Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to EGIL the Podcast, a production of the European Journal of International Law. My name is Sarah Nowen and I'm an editor-in-chief of the journal and have the pleasure of hosting today's discussion between an author of an article in EGIL and an author of a reply to that article. Be ready for disagreement. 30 years ago, when the journal had just been founded, international law and democracy was a burgeoning topic of inquiry. One could roughly divide the scholarship into two strands. One explored whether, and if so, to what extent, there is an international legal norm that requires democracy. Is democratic governance a criterion for statehood, for recognition, for participation in international organizations? Does international law require election monitoring? Is there a human right to democracy? And if so, what are the consequences? The other strand of scholarship investigates the democratic credentials of the international legal system itself. Is international law democratic? And if not, how could it be made more democratic? At the occasion of EGIL's 30th birthday, the editorial boards decided to revisit the question of international law and democracy. Around the 2020s, democracy seemed under various attacks. What is the state of scholarship on international law and democracy? The latest issue of EGIL, issue 32.1, is entirely dedicated to international law and democracy revisited and will give you a flavor of the state of the scholarship. We open this symposium issue with one article that neatly fits in the first trend and that head on addresses the question of what happened to international law and democracy scholarship. Dr. Akbar Razulov authored From the Wells of Disappointment the curious case of the international law of democracy and the politics of international legal scholarship. Akbar, senior lecturer in public international law at the University of Glasgow, is with us today. Welcome, Akbar. We also have with us Brad Roth, professor of law and political science at Wayne State University, who disagrees with some of Akbar's claims in the article and who has written a reply published in the same issue. Brad, a warm welcome to you too. Good to be here. So now, without further ado, Akbar, what is in your view so curious about the case of international law of democracy? Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about this uh, episode and the history of uh, disciplinary consciousness that I have long been fascinated by. And uh, it is wonderful to be able to talk about this, especially with uh, someone like Professor Roth, who uh, was a direct participant in those events that in a way provide the material for, for my uh, argument. Now, the article in essence uh, can be summarized more or less as follows. Uh, it is a story of the rise and fall of the concept of uh, the international law of democracy, which uh, was the product of a very particular narrative about law, politics, and history that first entered the common disciplinary consciousness of the international law discipline after the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, um, and then uh, enjoyed a period of impressive um, acceptance within the broader disciplinary communities for a few years 
um, before its fate turned in a very dramatic fashion. So um, throughout, if we go back to the early 1990s, there is a wealth of scholarship being produced, very excitable scholarship as well in, term, in terms of its tone, in terms of uh, its claims. Uh, and there are two sets of claims that seem to emerge uh, simultaneously as part of a single narrative. Uh, the first claim is that a very distinct kind of rupture had taken place in the fundamental structure of the international legal system at the end of the Cold War, uh, brought about by the fact that international law had somehow turned into a platform for the promotion of democratic values. And the second set of claims uh, closely linked to that is because of this rupture, it is incumbent now on international lawyers to revise everything they know about international law as a legal system, but also about international law as a discipline. And so my interest here is, is to trace the, the, the story of that narrative and the concept that it produced. Uh, the vision it inspired enjoyed an impressive degree of acceptance within the, the field, but then somehow international lawyers started to grow skeptical about it. And by the late 1990s, the early 2000s, whatever support they had given it was totally withdrawn. So the argument that I make in my article is that to understand the logic of this rise and fall, we should not look outside the disciplinary context. We should not look as uh, sometimes we are invited to look at the uh, march of geopolitical history or the rise and fall of empires, that the answers are much more local in that context. Uh, and by local, I mean the context of the international legal discipline as such. So the argument that I make in this article is that the reason uh, the ILD concept uh, sank was because it was torpedoed. It was attacked in a, a very interesting fashion by a group of scholars whom I provisionally call here the anti-ILD uh, camp. Uh, and, and I think part of what inspired the anti-ILD camp was their resistance to the vision that was put forward by the scholars who associated themselves with the international law. Of democracy project. Um, now, the vision which uh, they pushed back against to someone who is operating in the context of a discipline as it finds itself in the early 1990s would probably be unquestionably experienced as a neo-colonial vision. So the pro-ILD arguments that are put forward come across as, as essentially suggesting that there should be a uh, weakening of the traditional protections against non-intervention, weakening of the traditional protections against the use of force. There should be a greater oversight exercised uh, by the international community over what traditionally would have been considered domestic sovereign choices uh, of, of uh, sovereign countries. And so the anti-ILD scholars pushed back against all of this. And the way they did it uh, was, was very interesting to me because they did it by challenging and undermining the basic disciplinary credentials of this pro-ILD scholarship. The argument basically went something like this. What ILD scholars are saying and putting forward is not just bad politics, it's not just bad ideology, it is also bad law. It lacks analytical rigor, it uses concepts that are too fuzzy, uh, it doesn't observe the rules that one should follow under the doctrine of sources, it doesn't show, in other words, a sufficient mastery of good legal technique in the sense that it ignores the technical requirements of legal reasoning that you would expect a good legal professional uh, to follow. 
And because of all that, it hasn't met the standard of how legal arguments are supposed to be made in international law. And so it's basically sloppy and utopian in the worst possible sense of the word. Now, this kind of critical move has a very long and complex history in international law. It has been used, for example, by some of the scholars who tried to argue against the proliferation of new human rights standards, but also by scholars who challenged and criticized the political agenda of the NIO. Now, we can call this move the anti-utopian move or the fetishism of the legal technique and uh, doctrinaire positivism move. The important thing about it is that this move in terms of its design as a narrative does not really target the substance of the legal policy argument that one wants to challenge. What it targets instead is the technical execution of that argument. So the aim, in other words, is to cut the ground from beneath uh, your opponent by marginalizing their arguments as unprofessional. Okay, so the particular claim that I want to make here is that firstly, this is essentially what the anti-ILD camp collectively did to the pro-ILD camp in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and that secondly, that the way this was done has led to two sets, if you like, of unintended consequences. The first was the uh, propagation amongst the rest of the international law discipline of a false sense of reality, and the second was the re-entrenchment within the discipline of a deeply regressive model of knowledge production. Brad, this article prompted you to write a reply. What is it that you disagree with? Well, thank you. Uh, I'm, first of all, uh, perhaps all too flattered by the thought that uh, I was, uh, and along with some colleagues, uh, capable of torpedoing such a massive project. Um, but I don't think that that's actually what occurred. In fact, uh, I think that the international law of democracy, as you've described it, uh, has not really waned very much. Uh, there has been some change of emphasis over time in response to historical developments, uh, but I hardly see the international law of democracy literature as having been savaged. Uh, and indeed, uh, very little of the response to it, and certainly none of my response to it, was a calling into question of the professional credentials uh, of those who were carrying out that discourse or the, the methodological rigor uh, of what they were doing. The point was, in a sense, uh, to uh, uh, use the methodological assumptions that they were operating from, because they, for the most part, were standard uh, positivistic assumptions, uh, and to point out that, in some sense, the glass was half empty rather than half full, uh, that the claim that was being made was essentially for an emerging right to democratic governance and similar kinds uh, of uh, provisional arguments. And the argument from the other side, methodologically speaking, was simply that things had not indeed progressed to the point uh, that where one could say that these uh, norms had solidified in the way that had been characterized, uh, and that there were alternative directions in which these norms might develop uh, that certainly had not, uh, not been exhausted. Uh, it was also, of course, closely conjoined with a concern about policy. Uh, and so I certainly would not accept the characterization that this was simply a methodological attack or even primarily a methodological attack uh, on the international law of democracy. Uh, rather, it was a set of concerns uh, that stemmed from uh, many of the points that Akbar made at the beginning 
uh, about the, the, the nature of potential neocolonialism. Uh, what you had was an undermining uh, in the international law of democracy literature uh, of the basic idea of the sovereign equality of liberal and non-liberal states. Um, that, uh, or states, I should say, actually sovereign states governed uh, by liberal and non-liberal regimes. Uh, and so uh, it was here that one had to look to the, the, the nature of the critique. Um, it is true, of course, in the wake of the end of the Cold War, that there was much greater emphasis in the international law literature uh, on the idea of democracy in the abstract uh, and uh, on the idea, essentially, that states uh, were the manifestations of the self-determination of the territorial populations that they encompassed. Uh, the question then was, what was the relationship between that basic idea, which uh, undergirded many of the developments of international law subsequent to 1990, what was the relationship between that idea and specific norms of liberal democratic uh, political forms uh, which could determine winners and losers in local political contests. Uh, and the question was whether uh, those uh, normative developments of the international system were sufficient to justify uh, claims with respect uh, to uh, the fundamental question of what apparatus had legal standing to assert rights, incur obligations, confer immunities, and so on, on behalf of the sovereign entity. This is a very fundamental question in international law. And insofar as a law of governmental illegitimacy could be said to come into force, uh, which would displace existing governments uh, and allow external actors to deem as the appropriate bearers uh, of this standing on behalf of the sovereign state, uh, other kinds of apparatuses sponsored by those foreign states in the name of democracy, uh, then you had an enormous capacity uh, for the international law of democracy to become transmogrified uh, into a kind of neocolonialism. Uh, and so this was the sort of concern that undergirded certainly my work on this topic, uh, and I think the work of many other critics of the international law of democracy. Okay, so we here can identify a few bones of contention. I think one is... Um, you know, what, what was the primary focus? Was it uh, a matter of changing the, the, the form of international law or, or was it really mostly about a substantive policy issue or, or a political issue, namely that of uh, democracy versus sovereign equality? Uh, the, the second point that clearly comes up is, is the relationship with neocolonialism. So who, who is the neocolonialist here? Uh, but I think before we go into these areas, perhaps we should first define our terms. What do we mean by international law and democracy, especially when we talk about international law and democracy scholarship? Akbar, what do you mean? So in a nutshell, the concept of international law and democracy that uh, I am interested in uh, describing and uh, tracing the evolution of is the product of this two-pronged narrative that I uh, mentioned earlier, the first prong of the narrative is that a very fundamental change has occurred in the structure of international law as a legal system. And that change was brought on by the fact that for some reason or another, international law has turned into a platform for the promotion of a certain 
set of political ideas that historically it would not be associated with uh, in terms of uh, promoting. Um, and the second prong of the narrative is that because of this fundamental rupture in the structures of the international legal system, the scholarly community now has to rethink how it understands the international legal system. So it has to change its attitude towards international legal system. And as a corollary of that, it has to rethink its knowledge protocols. It has to rethink how the debate about international law, in other words, how the discipline of international law uh, is practiced. And the particular shifts that were identified by these scholars as occurring in the fundamental structure of the uh, international legal system um, essentially came down to a combination of um, four different uh, ideas uh, or four different legal reforms that were claimed to have uh, occurred. The first of these ideas is the idea that in one way or another, in customary international law, there is now a uh, an emerging right to democratic governance, what uh, Tom Frank called the democratic entitlement, which is a putative universal human right to live under a democratically constituted government. The second idea is that there also has emerged or is in the process of emerging now an obligation uh, to hold periodic free and fair elections, and in so doing, to submit to some form of election monitoring. The third idea is that uh, there is now also a principle of democratic legitimacy making inroads into the law of statehood and recognition. And it makes that inroad uh, in the form of a new duty, a duty of mandatory non-recognition of non-democratic states and regimes. And that the fourth element that uh, follows from all of that, and this was something that was advocated by some pro-ILD scholars, not by everyone, is that uh, there is now a new vision of how use ad bellum is set up alongside the traditional exceptions to Article 2.4 regime. There may now be emerging a putative right to use limited force and intervene in the domestic affairs of other states with a view to strengthening and promoting therein the workings of democratic governance. Okay, so just for the clarity of the rest of the discussion, Brad, when we are talking about ILD, are you adopting the same definition or do you have a different understanding of international law and democracy? Well, I certainly have a related understanding of it. I think perhaps the biggest difference is how I would characterize what is going on, uh, because I think Akbar somehow understands the ILD as a kind of counter-hegemonic vision, um, when in fact, I would argue it was really just the contrary. Um, that largely what it was, was the reunification of the left and right wings of liberal internationalism, uh, what Anthony Lake, the national security advisor to Bill Clinton, once referred to as the neo-Wilsonian synthesis, uh, that could basically bring back together uh, what had been split asunder by the Cold War and by particularly the Vietnam War uh, in the United States and also elsewhere in the West, um, this consensus that the purpose of international legal order was the imposition of a determinate set of values associated uh, with liberal democratic political ideology. Uh, and so that, I think, is really uh, where it came from. Uh, the, there had been an, a right to political participation in international law, obviously, from the time of the Universal Declaration in Article 21 
uh, and in Article 25 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. In the period of Cold War, it got remarkably little attention. Uh, probably the most important article written about it was written at the very end of the Cold War era by Henry Steiner uh, in 1988, and it was a reflection in many ways uh, of the open-textured nature of the right to political participation as conceptualized in a pluralistic international environment. Um, so the, the right to political participation uh, remained a kind of open question where the one-party state that tolerated no organized opposition would nonetheless be seen as the democratic embodiment uh, of the will of the territorial population. Uh, now, this, of course, comes to a rather abrupt halt uh, with the collapse of communist regimes at the turn of the 1990s. And so what you get are three different developments within the right to political participation. Uh, the first is an increased determinacy with respect to what is meant by political participation, uh, uh, procedures that are associated with so-called free and fair multi-party elections, which uh, carry with them all kinds of requisites uh, associated with what Robert Dahl used to call polyarchy. Uh, and, uh, and those, of course, also could be associated with uh, systems of international election monitoring and indeed even international electoral supervision. Uh, the second piece of it was the determinacy of the relationship between participation and the actual exercise of power, the delegitimation of reserves of authority that would be inconsistent with liberal democratic principles, such as the uh, reserves of authority for a vanguard party uh, or for a military sort of supervising democracy. Um, but those two developments then give rise to the possibility of a third that is always latent uh, in this uh, literature, even though only carried to its logical conclusion by certain authors such as Michael Reisman. Uh, and that was the idea that because the will of the people is the basis of the authority of government as set out in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and because we now are understanding the will of the people as reducible to the end product of these certified processes of free and fair elections, that it would follow that a government that existed in defiance of these basic standards would lack standing to assert rights, uh, including the right against intervention on behalf of the state, uh, and that indeed consent might be provided by a, 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 a displaced government uh, or a government that had not been allowed to take power after having certifiably won a free and fair election. Uh, the consent could be conferred for military intervention to emplace that alternative regime in power. Uh, so that was the, the real latent significance of this international law of democracy. Uh, and as I say, the, the, the critical theorist in all of this, the one who departed the most from the most standards uh, uh, sort of conception of source doctrines and, uh, and, and international legal methodology was Michael Reisman, uh, carrying forward the vision of the New Haven School and in a very noteworthy piece in EGIL in 2000, uh, defended unilateralism on the ground that the international legal institutions had not evolved to the level of being able to truly implement uh, the norms that had been established by international law, uh, and therefore uh, that unilateralism, essentially what came to be known rather notoriously as coalitions of the willing, uh, could actually take up uh, the cause uh, and implement 
uh, without the consent of international institutions, uh, the liberal democratic vision. Well, this point, I think, brings us very close to one area of contention, and it's the relationship between ILD scholarship, or actually anti-ILD scholarship, and neocolonialism. So, Brad, can you explain what was the concern of anti-ILD scholarship and neocolonialism? Well, in the period prior to the end of the Cold War, for uh, roughly three decades, basically the period from the late 1950s to the late 1980s, uh, there had really been a fundamental transformation in international relations and international law uh, based upon the emergence of the post-colonial world, based upon what came forth from the Bandung Conference of 1955 and the creation of the non-aligned movement and ultimately the G77. Uh, and these forces in the global south were able to accomplish through political struggle and through the peculiar configuration of a Cold War world, uh, a transformation uh, in the way in which sovereign equality was conceptualized in the international system so as to establish a fundamental right uh, of non-intervention in the internal affairs of states, that we move from the idea of self-determination of peoples uh, very naturally to the uh, resolve against neocolonialism that uh, each state has the inalienable right to choose its own political, economic, social, and cultural systems without interference in any form by other states. Uh, this, of course, embodied in a number of international declarations, including the Friendly Relations Declaration in 1970, uh, and then, of course, reaffirmed very strongly and concretely by the International Court of Justice in the Nicaragua decision in 1986. Uh, for many of us, uh, the, the case of the U.S. intervention in Nicaragua uh, was a foundational moment for all of this, uh, certainly something that oriented my views toward international law as having been a political activist in the 1960s, or 1980s rather, uh, uh, attempting to um, uh, present uh, the case against U.S. intervention in Nicaragua and other parts of the world. Um, this was a resounding affirmation that international law was a barrier to this kind of projection of great power uh, uh, exertions uh, upon weak states and the effort to, to determine winners and losers in local political contests. Uh, and so the concern on my part and on the part of, I think, many other people similarly situated uh, was that the international law of democracy uh, was the undoing of all of this, an effort in some sense to overrule the Nicaragua decision uh, and to open the door to kinds of interventions uh, that uh, had been seen as prohibited. Michael Reisman, of course, represented the quintessence of all of this in his argument that the U.S. invasion of Panama, uh, far from being an imposition on Panamanian sovereignty, was actually a vindication of Panamanian sovereignty because it was approved by a government that had ostensibly been freely and fairly elected. I'm very thankful for uh, Professor Roth's explanation of the framework and the context of which he is approaching this debate, because it helps, uh, to my mind, to clarify a fundamental juncture between our conversations. I don't think we're talking about the same thing. Uh, with all respect, the attribution to me of the view that ILD scholarship was counter-hegemonic uh, is uh, from, from where I sit fundamentally misplaced. My argument is not about the uh, ILD scholarship being counter or pro-hegemonic. I think uh, a large part of the protestation here 
uh, is uh, that comes from Professor Roth is pushing at an open door. Uh, my argument here, and I think it is also highlighted by the difference in our concepts, the way we define the concept of ILD. Um, my project is talking about events that happened in the plane of disciplinary debates, whereas Professor Roth is talking about events that uh, happened, for lack of a better description, in the real world of international legal positive reality. I want to talk about the politics of disciplinary debates. Professor Roth wants to talk about the politics of geopolitical, uh, geojuridical uh, events and uh, completely bypassing the former type of politics, which I think is, again, uh, very symptomatic. So let me uh, just uh, explain how I understand this um, problem um, to be both not inconsequential and politically relevant. So one of the first things that uh, jumps to attention about the ILD debate in the post-Cold War period is that it managed to bring together groups of scholars who otherwise, in terms of their external political profiles, had very little in common. So the pro-ILD camp brought uh, left-wing liberals like Thomas Frank alongside right-wingers like Michael Riesman. The anti-ILD camp brought critical scholars like Susan Marks and Marty Koskinemi alongside uh, uh, self-described uh, methodological conservatives like uh, Professor Roth and uh, Thomas Carruthers. And one of the issues that I try to explore in this article is the fundamental disjunction which these unusual alliances help reveal between what we might call a global concept of politics, politics with a capital P, the politics of neocolonialism and uh, liberalism, democracy and, and humanitarianism, and the much more local, mundane concept of politics, which is grounded in the material realities of the interdisciplinary division of labor that is triggered by the tone of our debates with one another as scholars. Now, these two fields, these two planes, uh, are governed by very different logics, uh, which means that over time, each of them develops its own internal system of scales and coordinates, its own ways of experiencing tradition and enacting progress, or in other words, its own map of right and left. Uh, and so uh, what position would take in one field has in itself no predictive value of what kind of politics we create in another field. And we know all of this from everyday life. You know, being a fiscal conservative does not preclude somebody from being a social liberal uh, or you know, preaching the message of charity does not preclude somebody from also being a workplace bully. So uh, a large part of what seemed to motivate anti-ILD scholars was their concern about the potential neo-colonial implications of some of the arguments that were put forward by pro-ILD scholars. But in deciding how to counter these arguments, I argue, they enacted a discursive strategy that produced consequences in the internal social cultural space of the discipline of international law. And these consequences were deeply reactionary and regressive. By attacking pro-ILD arguments from the perspective of um, relatively doctrinaire formalist positivism from the perspective of technical legal proficiency and good professionalism, ILD scholars succeeded potentially in weakening the basic disciplinary credibility of the original ILD narrative. Uh, but one of the unintended sets of consequences that came from that was that 
they entrenched within the social cultural space of the discipline, a decidedly reactionary, uh, regressive knowledge culture. Uh, and the central theme here uh, is that, um, how can I put it? Uh, how we engage with and criticize other scholars' writings projects an argument that is not only a vision of what the discipline as a whole should consider as good legal scholarship, it is also an argument for a very specific division of labor and distribution of roles within the discipline's invisible college and the associated power structures. And looking at it in this context, it seems to me that there were two things about the anti-ILD argument that deserve of attention. The first is that the ideal model of how we should be doing international legal scholarship that was implied by the anti-ILD discourse had significant distributional consequences for the political economy of the discipline as a system of knowledge production. And the second uh, thing is that it is not at all self-evident that this was actually the best model or, or that it was a good thing for the uh, discipline to re-entrench and recommit itself to. Uh, there was no reason, for instance, why anti-ILD scholars had to adopt this particular set of tropes, this particular rhetorical ideological setup that they did. There was a whole range of other uh, options open to them, a whole range of other uh, argument strategies that they could adopt that would uh, lead to a critical and very robust engagement with the arguments of Michael Riesman or Thomas Frank uh, that would not result in the re-entrenchment of this deeply reactionary economy of knowledge. You know, we don't have to go far. Uh, Susan Marx's own uh, work on ideology critique offers a great example. So too, uh, in a different context, uh, of, uh, similar examples can also be found in the work of Nathaniel Berman, uh, Anthony Angie, Mohammed Bajawi. Uh, so the fact that the anti-ILD camp collectively embraced the voice of disciplinary anti-utopianism was neither inevitable nor self-evident. It was fundamentally a matter of choice. And so my claim is that the consequences which this choice has produced continued well beyond the immediate context of the initial ILD discussions. And in this context, there is no need for us to assume that uh, the pro-ILD scholarship was progressive or counter-hegemonic or that its politics was deserving of attention. We don't need to assume that everything that Thomas Frank said was intellectually sharp and progressive to find that the kind of um, dressing down he received at the hands of someone like Thomas Carruthers uh, deserves attention and is problematic. The theme here, and I think it also goes to something that Professor Roth mentioned, the theme here is what the anti-ILD people perhaps unintentionally uh, view only as a matter of methodology is actually a matter of politics. Akbar, let me stop you there because you already warned we may be having two separate monologues here rather than a dialogue. And I wonder whether that is because one is focusing, is, is actually, Brad is actually arguing, look at the substance, look at the arguments we were, we were making, look at the type of politics with a capital P that we were trying to uh, pr promote. And your point is, yes, but look at uh, the kind of inter or, or within the discipline type of politics, politics with a lowercase p, you were um, entrenching in that particular way. Which, so if we want to get back to the dialogue, we have to answer or address the question, which one prevails? Should in whatever we're doing, should we always 
be prioritizing the politics of our form or should we be prioritizing the politics of the substance? Brad. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, let me just say a few things about what, what Akbar has said. A, this is a really fascinating conversation. Um, uh, first of all, I, I don't want to, to, uh, to speak for other scholars who can defend themselves quite adequately. Um, certainly no one has ever accused me of engaging in a hatchet job on the work of any of my colleagues, some of whom I worked with quite closely, and in particular, uh, the case of Greg Fox, with whom I've co-edited two volumes. Uh, as, uh, uh, he and I have co-authored, and, and he and I uh, have a, a really very common conception of international legal methodology and so have never taken shots at the quality uh, of each other's work in that regard. Um, I think what, uh, what I have done and what many others in, in doing the things that I have been doing, uh, have been, been attempting to accomplish, um, has been to, to take uh, the ILD scholarship at its own word. Um, that the ILD scholarship has primarily been grounded in traditional methodological premises uh, and attempted to uh, move from those premises uh, to a set of conclusions. Uh, and the, the response of myself and a number of other people has largely been yes, but, uh, and to point out that uh, the argument gets you part of the way there, but it doesn't actually get you the full way there, and that there are good policy reasons not to want to go the full distance. Um, it's interesting that, that my, my book on governmental illegitimacy and international law is really quite contrary to the model that you're sketching out, because what that book attempted to do in 1999 uh, was not simply to answer the traditional positivist case uh, for the democratic entitlement, but actually to delve into the realm of political theory. And, and so chapters two to four in that book uh, are very different from the ordinary positivistic tracts in international law that one would ordinarily see because it actually delves into the question of what is it that historically has been understood to ground the idea of legitimate governance. Uh, and particularly uh, the, the chapter four on the rise and fall of revolutionary democratic dictatorship uh, was an effort to try to come to grips with how our understanding of, of governmental illegitimacy, which had been inclusive uh, in, in large measure of uh, claims of one party uh, systems that tolerated no organized opposition, how that in fact had become transformed, uh, and yet how many of the critiques of the, the apologists for those systems um, uh, retained a certain kind of relevance uh, that were be was being ignored uh, by those who were associated with the international law of democracy. Finally, I would want to say uh, that there simply is a difference between being a visionary or an ethicist on the one hand uh, and being an international lawyer on the other. Um, that uh, what one is trying to do in, in, in having an impact uh, through international law uh, is to reach toward the standards that have been established in the international system that efficacious actors in that system acknowledge to be binding, uh, and that those kinds of constraints that can have actual effects uh, on uh, policies in the international system uh, are, are the, the norms that we're, we're attempting to address. That is in no way exclusive, uh, exclusionary of, of, of some uh, other uh, approach to international order, which might be more utopian. Um, and indeed, I uh, very much associate myself with those uh, who would strongly favor reconceptualization of the international legal order. But the international legal order is what we currently have, 
uh, at the moment, and our claims about international law cannot be better or more elegant than the international legal system that actually exists. Uh, and so I do want to defend this kind of methodological conservatism, uh, particularly where it serves the purpose of trying to essentially um, reinforce political gains that were hard fought uh, uh, for in the, in the international order uh, by those who represented the global south in the earlier era. Brad, Adbar, I know that you haven't finished the discussion and I can ask our wonderful sound producer, Jamie, to put you in a breakout room so that you can continue debating these matters. Uh, but EGL podcast listeners uh, may have other things to do. They may have finished their run by now or they um, may have finished doing the dishes, whatever they were doing while listening to this podcast. But for in case they haven't and they would like to listen to more podcasts, please have a look at egil.org or egiltalk.org. And soon you will also be able to see on, or actually already on egil.org, the um, entire issue on International Law and Democracy Symposium. So Brad Akbar, thank you very much for joining us today. And to all the listeners, thanks for tuning in and we hope to be with you soon again on another interesting topic. 